Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. One thing that strikes me is that even for professional investors, economists, forecasters, it's really, really, really hard to forecast and time a recession correctly. So I think that's something all investors should really keep in mind is that even some of the best Wall Street strategists, economists, if you keep hearing about a recession, sure, maybe we'll fall into a recession in the first half of this year, but maybe we won't. You know, no one got 2022, right? So I think it's important to take all of these forecasts um, with a grain of salt because it's really hard to time the market and kind of position perfectly for these things. Thrilled to have on the podcast today, leads writer for the Wall Street Journal, CNBC correspondent, award-winning journalist, Gunjan Banerjee. Welcome, Gunjan. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm really excited. Excited, too, because I have wanted to pick someone smart's brain about the markets and the economy of 2023 ever since the year got started, which I guess isn't that long. Um, But... I made a series of predictions at the beginning of the year, and one of them was that I thought that there would be an economic recession in 2023. And I, I based that on the fact that I'd had a bunch of conversations with various investors and CEOs. And let me say that their mood could best be described as lousy <laughs> or something along those lines. And I put that, that into my predictions in part because I wanted to send a message to people. It's like, look, this might not be the year of... Uh, mammoth risk taking. <laughs> so, what do you think of that? And also, what kind of uh, uh, sources of information do you get as someone who works for both the Wall Street Journal and CNBC? Thanks, Andrew. Well, I just want to start by saying that you are not alone when it comes to feeling or thinking that we are going to enter a recession in 2023. Um, and I feel like even in 2022, so many people were. We're predicting a recession. Um, it just it kind of even became part of a pop, part of pop culture, right? You had rapper Cardi B weighing in, uh, saying that she thought we were in a downturn, uh, commenting on high inflation. So it's it's been all about um, when are we going to enter a recession? And Wall Street is expecting one in 2023. Like for the investors I've been speaking with, it's kind of the base case. Like to a lot of people, it's not if it's when does it happen. Um, To be honest, I wonder if we're too pessimistic, because when I look at the economic data, uh, you know, the Friday jobs report, unemployment hit a 50 year low. Like if you want a job, um, it's it's still easier to find one than it has been um, at a lot of different times over the past decade. So it makes me wonder, like, why are we so pessimistic about the economy? Are people too gloomy about the economy going into 2023. Uh, so, so you talked about the scuttlebutt you're getting from Wall Street investors. Do folks talk to you both on the record and off the record? Do you just have casual conversations and, and see what's going on? And they'll say, hey, between you and me, uh, and, and then they'll download stuff to you? Yeah, I have I have a range of conversations with investors, right? A lot of these are on the record. I'm quoting them in my coverage. And then I'm always looking to chat with people off the record, on background, uh, just to get a sense of where their head's at, what they're seeing out there in the market, you know, when they're putting on trades, when they're investing. And that's those types of conversations are super helpful. I'm also looking at, you know, all this economic data that comes out, uh, what the big banks are saying. So there's there's like a deluge of information out there to kind of parse through on, on any given day. Fascinating. Uh, and so you, you kind of choose what to share, what to write about, and then other things you keep to yourself until it, um, it becomes story worthy. So some of the big stories in the markets over this last few months, really, um, there's been a massive pullback in the tech sector, uh, which had enjoyed this kind of 
um, sense of both growth and froth and safety, I suppose. It's like, can't go wrong if you just buy Amazon, Apple, Netflix, uh, etc. And then simultaneously, you had this crash in crypto uh, where the space lost trillions of dollars in value and everyone is fascinated by the Sam Bankman Freed story. It's like, you know, like you can't get enough of it, which I get um, as someone who'd uh, met Sam uh, and know a lot of people that know him. Um, so I, I will confess to everyone here, I was someone who looked at all the political donations Sam was making and saying, why can't we get some of that? Uh, but I never actually succeeded. <laughs> so I was among, which now I guess is like a pretty good look. Um, but but you, you had this implosion of crypto uh, and then this massive pullback in large cap tech companies uh, first, do, do you see any spillover from crypto into uh, the other markets? And second, what do you make of the relative collapse in valuation of the big tech companies? First of all, I, I don't think there's been so far a ton of spillover from crypto into the stock market, the bond market. And I think that was really interesting because that was a fear I had heard about quite a lot. You know, when I'd be meeting with sources, talking to them, they were like, watch out for you know, when you see this big deleveraging, you see all this selling in the crypto market, watch out for how it ripples into the stock market. And the good news is it's been relatively insulated. Um, Interesting. That being said, it may not be over yet, right? We don't know where also crypto true. <laughs> goes from, from here, right? Like it's still trading near 20,000, well off the peak last year. Um, but there's people that think it's going to zero. There's people that think, hey, this sell-off is actually just beginning. Um, and it's interesting, the tech bubble keeps coming up in my conversations with investors, where a lot of investors do see comparisons with what's happened to mega cap tech, the Facebooks, Netflixes, Googles of the world, and um, what happened when the dot-com bubble burst in 2000. And what they've been saying is, hey, that took several years to play out, right? We're, we've seen one year go by, the fangs have really be, been dethroned um, in the market. But, you know, what is next? Do these companies keep selling off? And I think you do have a class of investors that's saying the sell-off is just starting and it's it's not over just yet in some of the more speculative corners of the market. And even in the safer big technology stocks, I think it's really, it's hard to overstate how important these companies are to our society and, and also investors where, you know, one of my cousins, uh, the past few years, he got into investing and he bought the FANG stocks. He bought Facebook, App, Apple, Netflix, Google, and he felt really rich on the way up, right? Like he kind of laughed at me for my index fund <laughs> investments and was like, I I'm, I'm up like 70%. I'm up this much. And he sold out of those stocks now and he's moving to index funds now. And I think you're seeing that in several parts of the market. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because one of the things I want to do is provide uh, some kind of practical, actionable uh, guidance for folks. So um, you've done what most smart people say to do, uh, which, by the way, I also say to do, um, which is don't try and outsmart everyone. Uh, don't pick individual stocks and think you're, you're a genius, uh, that you're better off just taking a broad swath of uh, stocks in a bucket through an index fund. Um, I personally would recommend an ETF, uh, you know, like you could take an ETF for the S&P 500, an ETF for dividend uh, yielding stocks like DVY, and then just set it and forget it. Uh, and, and then you might have a, a smart ass cousin who's like, ha ha ha, like, like you know, <laughs> look at me uh, making out. Um, but that only works in, in one direction. And I'm someone who thinks that my, my family uses how, like Amazon Prime in our household, um, and I can think that Amazon is integral to the day-to-day -day lives of a lot of Americans and still may be overvalued <laughs> you know, because if you look at the numbers, you're like, oh, you know, uh, like, you know, like X hundred billion uh, or in some cases even over a trillion, like, you know, does that compute? So it's it sounds like you're also someone who uh, has adopted index funds in terms of their personal uh, financial planning. Yeah. And look, I, I can't give investment advice and I don't do that in my writings for, for the journal. Um, and I have certain limitations as a reporter and to prevent conflicts of interest um, in, in pretty staid index funds, right? My retirement accounts. I will say that um, 
during the past two years in 2020 and 2021, people just had an insatiable appetite for risk, right? They wanted the riskiest stocks. They wanted to trade <laughs> options. But seriously, they, they, they were like, how can I find the next Amazon, right? That's going to loom large over our society. How can I, you know, get into the next Tesla, the, net, the next Netflix? So they, they wanted to trade on margin. You know, that means you're borrowing to kind of magnify your bets. They wanted to trade options. They wanted to take, trade risky ETFs. And I think... In my conversations with individual investors this year, um, some of them had said, hey, look, I realized that I wasn't going to be successful doing that anymore. It was a lot easier to trade when the market was only going in one direction up. So they said, now I'm kind of just passively investing. <laughs> I'm dollar cost averaging into these index funds rather than um, making making meme stock bets or these YOLO YOLO trades in the market. Yeah, and I think that's what you won your award for. Uh, uh, you might have won multiple awards, but it was like reporting on meme stocks. <laughs> and, and Thank you, yeah. One advantage to the set it and forget it is uh, it just gives you peace of mind. I mean, what happened to me, I'll share, is that uh, before I decided to run for president, I was like, you know what, I, I'm going to have zero bandwidth to think about any of this shit. So I'm just going to <laughs> to do like the most plain vanilla stuff in the universe and just like ignore it for the next couple of years. Uh, and it, it definitely uh, gives you peace of mind where, you know, you, like you're not thinking about this stuff at all. Um, now, that kind of runs contrary to. Uh, the market watching culture, and I have a, a relative who you know was essentially day trading while I was ignoring everything. So you know, I mean, there's a, a, a spectrum. Um, one of the things I recently rediscovered uh, is that there are now high yield savings accounts that are uh, paying, you know, three and a half, three point seven five percent. I was like, wow, I've not seen those in years. Like, <laughs> like we're we're back to that now. Yeah, and and you know, I was talking to an executive of a big brokerage and. He was telling me instead of, you know, some of those single stock bets, what he's seeing interest in is, is people looking to, you know, what's the yield on this money market fund? What's the yield on the savings account? How can I get yield in the money sitting there and the safest possible thing? And, and that's a big shift from what we saw. And, you know, to your point about set it and forget it, I think one thing that isn't talked about enough is just the emotional roller coaster yeah, that it is for a lot of day traders. You know, they they have sleepless nights wondering yeah. about their Robinhood accounts, you know, seeing it fall further after they thought they were buying the dip. And that's one thing I heard about a lot last year where people initially when they st saw stocks fall, they were like, oh, I'm buying I'm buying NVIDIA on a discount. I'm buying Tesla on a discount. Guess what happens after that? It keeps falling, which is really, really painful when you're kind of all in the market. So I, I've heard about a lot of anguish out there over the past year. Yeah, so th those are two very important ideas. Number one, there are psychic costs uh, to being uh, so focused on the market. And number two, there is an aphorism, um, try not to catch a falling knife, <laughs> where you see something dropping and you're like, ooh, discount. And then, uh, you know, it, it can exactly. keep going down. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash yang. 
Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more. Um, you also mentioned Tesla stock, which has been one of the you know <laughs> biggest stories. Um, it's had a very rough period, and I think that in addition to a recent report where they uh, you know fell short of uh, delivery expectations, but the, the the big story is that uh, Elon Musk's attention has been on Twitter, uh, and also that there have been a bunch of people very publicly saying, you know what, I don't want to buy a Tesla now because like I, I'm I'm not as enamored with this. Uh, version of Elon's persona. Uh, and Tesla had, I think, a very clean, futuristic, uh, green energy vibe um, where people felt like they were uh, extraordinarily progressive uh, by buying yeah. a Tesla. Um, and I, I think that's been a bigger part of the stock story than really even like the, the more recent delivery numbers. Yeah. And, you know, I think the thing that looms large over all of that is that the 10-year treasury yield, which is like the benchmark for so many things across global markets, is now trading closer to 3.54%. Yeah, um, some of that's its highest money, levels. theoretically, yeah. Exactly, right. So the math that every single investor does is, you know, what can I get from the risk-free rate versus putting my money into something like Tesla or the broader stock market? And that calculation has completely changed this year. I will say Tesla was really the poster child for some of the euphoria that swept markets in 2020, 2021. People were trading options on Tesla, borrowing on margin to trade Tesla. And what we're seeing right now is just one of like the fastest drops in market value of a major U.S. corporation in history. So it's really, really mind boggling to watch um, how you know, Elon's attention has shifted, how that community has involved. Um, one really interesting thing is that individual investors have actually been sticking with Tesla. They are still buying Tesla in huge amounts. So they have a lot of conviction in the stock. And I think it tells you that, you know, Elon's fan base is still there. Tesla's fan base is still there. But also some of these habits that we learned, that investors learned, like my cousin over the past decade of buying tech stocks buying growth stocks, you know, those old habits uh, really die hard. Uh, so Gunjin, we're, we're talking about how it, it's not wise to try and stock pick, but you know who seem to be excellent stock pickers are members of Congress. <laughs> and one of the things that strikes me as common sense is that lawmakers should just be essentially uh, uh, forced to just buy index funds and set it and forget it. And then when they leave office, they can uh, resume. I think most Americans would agree with that. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it certainly does seem like a big conflict of interest, and I'm surprised that they they are able to do that. Um, just I'm going to plug some of the journal's excellent reporting on the conflicts of interests and, and trades by judges, um, by by people who work at the government, as well as as well as those in Congress, because it's been really eye popping for me to see um, that, you know, people across the government can kind of stock pick and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I, I've been in some of these rooms and I got to tell you, I can see very easily how it would happen where you're a legislator or a very senior official and you're just around all these uh, senior business people all the time. And they're your friends, they're your supporters. And then if they say to you, like, hey, there's this thing going on. Um, and there's no rule against you taking advantage of it, <laughs> then it'd be very, very natural for you to, to pull the trigger and, and feel smart. Um, and then everyone's trying to do you favors anyway. Um, so uh, it, it, it's setting people up to unfortunately trade on information that the public's never going to have. It is. You know, what would be interesting, though, is taking a look at or doing some sort of analysis on whether all these people who do trade on such information, whether it's judges or people in the government or, or you know, people in Congress, do they manage to outperform the S&P 500? Like, I think it's that oh, yeah, they, hard. They, oh, yeah, they do. They do. You think uh, they you do? Know, oh, yeah, because I've seen the numbers about the proportion of members of Congress who are millionaires, which, by the way, now is like well over 50% of them are millionaires. Wow. But, but that was not true when they all showed up. And so you think about it and say, wait a minute, you're getting paid $174,000 a year, which is a fine salary, but you have to maintain a couple of residences. How did you enter a non-millionaire and then emerge a millionaire like 8, 10, 12 years later? It's because their stock market returns 
are okay. phenomenal. <laughs> like like okay. if the if someone, but I would love to see the Wall Street Journal do uh, a story <laughs> on this to the extent that the information is publicly available, because I'm very confident that they would uh, be whipping all of us. I just think it's just so so hard to beat the index and to beat um, passive investment. So that's why that's why I bring it up, and that goes back to the risks that we were talking about. Oh, I, I'm I'm very confident that members of Congress are doing what the rest of us cannot, <laughs> which is beat index market returns on the regular. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. I was just in Asia... And China's gone from zero COVID to like everything's open um, in, in breakneck speed. I have family members who are in Asia who frankly got COVID <laughs> pretty much immediately oh, because wow. like, 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 I mean, they were fine. They're fine. Okay. They were young. They're, you know, like uh, um, uh, young parents in, in our age. I mean, it was stressful, but their, their symptoms were, were fine. One of the questions uh, I, I've wondered about is how much of the world's supply chain um, is going to be impacted by uh, China's opening up. So there was some optimism when they first announced their opening up. The markets went up because they were like, ooh, good, you know, and like no more of the yep. zero COVID stuff. But then people started actually getting COVID and uh, showing up in, in, in hospitals and the like. Um, the estimates of death uh, in China, they start at something like one and a half million um, and go up from there. China is going to report numbers differently in a way that frankly, is going to end up undercounting uh, the, the impact in a very significant way. Um, but for those folks who are looking at the markets, are you seeing or hearing that the supply chain is going to have problems because of uh, China's reopening? Well, so far, I think you're right, is that we've seen a lot of the optimism in the market reflected, right? We've seen international stocks actually outperform to start the year over the past 30 days by an incredibly wide margin after really lagging behind the U.S. for a while. And, and the surge in China stocks certainly plays a role. It's tough to say right now. And I think this is really one of the biggest wild cards for investors, right? Right now, a lot of investors are hoping that supply chain issues are kind of a thing of the past. You're seeing yeah. a lot of measures show that um, supply chain pressures, you know, there aren't as many ships at the Los Angeles port waiting to unload anymore. Um, I feel like a lot of investors I'm hearing from are saying we're hoping those issues have peaked. We're hoping inflation has peaked and that the CPI figures will show that inflation is declining. That being said, that's the one big wild card for markets. And it's one that no one has gotten right. The Fed did not get it right in 2022. Most investors did not get it right in 2022. You know, not one person I was talking to at the start of last year was saying they thought we'd end the year with interest rates at the highest level since 2007 and inflation as high as we ended the year. So I'm reluctant to even, you know, forecast or say what could happen there because I, I just don't think anyone has gotten it right. And it's, it's kind of the biggest risk to markets right now that inflation doesn't go down and that these supply chain pressures don't stay down. Yeah, if China can't manufacture and ship things, uh, things like iPhones or, or all of the things that are built there, 
um, that inflation will end up staying persistently high. And then the, the Fed, to your point, um, isn't going to lower. I mean, they're already talking about not lowering rates this year. The question is whether rates go higher. So one of the reasons why I am negative on both the market and the economy is because my friends uh, who are fund managers say that uh, the high interest rates uh, will have an impact that has not truly been felt just yet. And you referenced it earlier with the fact that now uh, treasuries are paying 3.5%. Um, so you have risk-free returns that are all of a sudden more appealing, uh, which will depress stock market valuations because they're looking up saying, wait a minute, like, you know, you have to compensate me for, for taking this risk where before you felt like they didn't <laughs> have to necessarily. Right. Um, and my, my friend said that there are a significant number of actors in the market that were essentially reliant upon low interest rates and cheap money uh, to have their businesses make sense. <laughs> and, and now if they, uh, you know, are paying higher borrowing costs, their businesses don't make sense. So, uh, so that's going to be uh, an ongoing problem. Uh, the similar dynamic is in the real estate market where mortgage rates are now six, seven, eight percent, uh, which is much higher than they were. Gosh, what were they were like less than half that not that long ago. Yeah. Um, and so if you're looking at buying a home now, all of a sudden your borrowing costs are much higher but the prices haven't changed. The sellers are not like, oh, interest rates are higher. I guess I'll, uh, you know, bring the price down. And so the prices are staying relatively fixed. So what my friend in real estate is saying is that just deals aren't happening. <laughs> you just have like these, yeah. the, the buyer and the seller looking across this, uh, this gap at each other. And so the volume keeps falling. So how does that play out? I mean, in, in my mind, logically, prices have to come down um, because, uh, you know, at some point, if you need to sell, you need to sell. Um, and and there are there are different people who are in in that position. Um, so those are some of the the massive adjustments I think need to be made. Is that a lot of companies need to try and adjust to a high interest higher interest rate environment, which some of them won't be able to do. Um, and then the real estate market has to to price correct. Totally, and that goes back to what we were talking about in terms of tech, right? Where take meta platforms right now, they are hoping to make these huge investments in their business, these huge CapEx investments. And I think years ago, investors would have said, sure, sp spend, spend a ton of money on that. We what think a fiasco that has term. turned out to be. I mean, that's, that's been a disaster. Huge, huge flop. Um, and part of it is just that these huge companies, these tech and growth companies just don't have the leeway that they did from investors. Um, you can do like no wrong Snap. for a long time. It's like your your geniuses do whatever. We'll just pile in. Money's no object. Exactly, <laughs> so, and that were, that was fine when when interest rates were zero and for a lot of the past decade. But now that they're not anymore, you know, the cost of capital has soared. It's it's more expensive to borrow. Um, the the valuation game has changed. So a lot of investors are saying. You know, we don't think you're worth what, what you were worth a year ago. So that changes the game for these tech executives. You, you talk about met, meta and the metaverse. Um, so uh, when I, I, I'm seeing these TV commercials advertising meta and the Oculus headset and virtual reality, trying to get people to buy it for the holidays or whatnot. Um, and I thought to myself, wow, I don't think this is going to work. Like, I, I don't think that tons of people are going to buy this thing. <laughs> and, and the folks who log into the metaverse have been pretty consistently disappointed uh, where that they've logged off and said that this, this is, is a wreck. So meta has lost uh, something like $600 billion in, in market cap or whatnot. Uh, they're, yeah. they're laying folks off. I mean, that, that's certainly another one of the biggest stories. And uh, it, it, it's, to me... Uh, a sign of like a single decision-making point where uh, Mark Zuckerberg has you know, controlling uh, ownership of Meta. And so he's like, hey, guys, Metaverse, future, let's go, hundreds of billions of dollars. And, and no one's around to be like, hey, Mark, uh, you know, no one wants to do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's very, um, it's very 2010s, I guess, where these tech companies just became more and more powerful and they could invest in these moonshot projects. And investors said, sure, here, take our money. <laughs> and they became trillion dollar companies. And um, we've seen that completely fall flat over the past year. And I think it'll be fascinating to see how that plays out in 2023. You know, do the market values of these tech companies shrink even more. Um, and, you know, going back to what you were saying about interest rates and mortgages, a lot of that depends on what the Fed does. You know, yeah, that impacts a, a lot the valuations. depends on what the Feds do, yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, it depends on um, how much higher they raise interest rates, and that will impact, you know, borrowing costs, housing affordability, as well as valuations of companies like Apple and Tesla and Amazon. And um, we just have, there's just so much uncertainty about this thing right now that impacts every corner of financial markets. And one really interesting dynamic is that there's almost this like game of chicken between Wall Street and the Fed right now, because the Fed is saying we're going to raise interest rates to the 5% range, and we're going to keep them there until the end of 2023. The market, um, various like interest rate derivatives markets and swaps markets, Showed that show that investors are betting that they're going to start cutting rates way wow. before that. Even though even um, though they've said we are not cutting rates, they've said that so many times. Yeah. and still you have the market pricing in. We don't think the Fed is going to do that. <laughs> so it's 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 really a fascinating dynamic. And um, yeah, I think one of the biggest questions for markets and the economy in 2023 is who's right? Is it Wall Street? Is it the Fed? And how high? Do they raise interest rates? And, you know, as we as we kind of discussed at the top of the call, do their interest rate increases tip the economy into a recession, which is everyone's fear right now? So is Wall Street pricing in no increases or is it pricing in uh, the interest rate actually getting cut? So they are pricing in increases for the next few months before the Fed starts cutting toward the end of the year. And that like reflects some of those recession fears that we were talking about, because why would the Fed cut rates? They would cut rates because their policies are rippling through the market, right? People are, are unable to afford maybe homes or they pull back on spending because things get, um, things get so expensive and maybe that pushes us into a downturn. And then they would have to cut rates. So it's a very nuanced perspective, but that is indeed what the street is pricing in right now. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today. Well, that, that, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, my, my friends tell, like, who are in the business said something to me around it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better and that they, they think that the opportunities are going to come um, after Q1 and Q2. Uh, they, they think Q3, Q4, which it, it sounds like it's somewhat consistent with what you're saying that uh, the market is, yep. is projecting. So uh, the new Congress got off to a rocky start where Republicans couldn't figure out uh, you know, their speaker situation. Um, it got resolved with Kevin McCarthy in the 15th try. Uh, I didn't notice any market response uh, where, uh, you know, I, I feel like D.C.'s dysfunction um, is getting worse. And a lot of Americans are looking up saying, whoa, like this crew doesn't seem to have its act together. Uh, and the legislative environment is really, really cloudy, given that you have to get Republican House majority on board with something that a Democratic Senate majority is on board with. And like, what does that overlap look like? You know, minimal at best in my mind. Um, is there a sense that legislative dysfunction is already kind of priced in where people just are shrugging and saying, sure, like D.C. is not going to do anything for the next two years? You know, it's kind of sad, but I feel like in in what I hear from investors, see from analysts and stuff, I do think some level of dis dysfunction is priced in. But not a whole lot of investors um, in, in, in my phone calls lately have been even bringing up what's going on in Washington. I feel like the focus is so unilaterally on the Fed and what they're going to do. It's just by far <laughs> Okay, that's good to know. Thing. It's just Fed, Fed, Fed. 
It, it kind of is. And inflation, inflation, inflation. Yeah. Um, because we've seen dysfunction in Wall Street before, right? We haven't seen interest rates this high before. We haven't seen inflation this high, at least since yeah. the 1970s. So we're kind of, we're in uncharted territory there for even a lot of investors who haven't lived through a kind of a macro environment like this. Whereas I feel like from time to time, we do see, you know, stalemates in Washington crop up. Well, the the biggest historical echo of this, you'd have to go back to the 70s when inflation was this dire. Uh, And uh, one interview I had on the podcast was with a guy named David Rubenstein, who uh, founded Mm -hmm. Carlyle. And he worked in the Carter administration uh, in the 70s when inflation was, I think it might have crept up to the high single digits, even double digits. And then uh, Paul Volcker, the Fed chair at the time, had to... Uh, raise interest rates to a point where it caused a significant recession. Uh, uh, even I think it was called stagflation because you had negative growth <laughs> and persistent inflation. Yeah. Uh, and it got Reagan in uh, four years later, like, you know, Jimmy Carter wasn't able to get his way out. And so David Rubenstein joked with me on the podcast. He said, well, no one wants me back in politics because last time I was there, you know, like, you had 10% inflation. He was joking because he's obviously, you know, like now now a very successful investor and and the rest of it. But um, you're right. We haven't seen anything like this since then. And that's, uh, gosh, I mean, that's even before my memory. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I was born in the seventies, so you know, I like uh, you know, as a four or five year old, I don't remember uh, what, what what's going on. Um, but you must talk to some graybeards who remember that. Yeah, I think the stagflation scenario. I do think some of those fears about that worst case, high inflation, low growth, stagflation and stagflationary environment. I think those have eased as we've seen inflation come down a little bit. Um, but that is literally a disaster situation, right, where that would mean the Fed would have to raise rates even more. Um, but again, it's it's all such a wild card. I'm not sure if you heard Jamie Dimon this week say the Fed has said they're going to raise rates to around 5%. I think it could maybe be 6%. You know, what does that mean for the stock market? We really don't know. Um, Jeez, but Jamie's I, I, right. I mean, that would, that would be... <laughs> Uh, you know, tectonic. So uh, I've spent some time with Jamie Dimon. um, And a number of years ago, he came out and said that the American economy is not working for the average American. And we should come up with like a Marshall plan to rebuild the economy, which I appreciated uh, from 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 Jamie. Um, He's been one of the more dour alarm ringers uh, recently. (laughs) And uh, Ray Dalio was also on the podcast and he said something similar about the American economy not working for the average American. If Jamie's right, I mean, it, we'd be in for a very, very rough go because it, it would be uh, you, it, the only reason interest rates would continue to go up like that is if inflation just is very, very persistent and stubborn. Um, and you can plausibly say, hey, if you have a supply chain shock because of COVID in China, like that could happen. There, there are different wildcard scenarios to your point, though right now um, more optimism is creeping in because we've gotten a couple of good data reports lately. Totally. and But I do want to, I think you bring up a really interesting point about is the American economy working for, for the average American and for the average worker? And I think one of the most fascinating dynamics playing out right now is during COVID, the inequality was just on full display, right? We saw the stock market soar to new heights. White collar workers were sitting at home on their laptops on Zoom, and you had blue collar workers out there braving COVID, right? Um, And it seemed very unfair. And I think inequality was really just on stark display at that time. During the recovery, after that brief recession that we saw in 2020, I do think what we've been seeing in the jobs figures and in some of the wages figures is just unbelievable demand for for blue collar workers. And I think they have a lot more leverage um, than they did, you know, even a few years back. And I think in the past downturns, they were they kind of faced the brunt of the layoffs. And, you know, we at the journal recently reported, is that changing? Is that dynamic evolving? Because I think what we're seeing is that you know, these big tech companies are laying off workers where there's still so much demand for for some of those blue collar jobs. So I think that's that's a really important thing to watch in the economy in 2023 is how does that evolve? Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. So you and I have been talking a lot about the markets, um, which people use as a proxy for the economy. But the uh, top 20% of Americans own 80% plus of stock market wealth, uh, and the bottom 48% of Americans own zero stock market wealth. Um, so that you have the market on one hand, and you have the economy on the other. Uh, now, of course, what happens in the market affects, uh, quote unquote, the real economy because uh, of uh, people going out and spending money and optimism and a bunch of other things. We, we said before that crypto hasn't really affected the market. Even as the market had a relative downturn, the real economy um, has stayed more or less intact. Um, what do you think about the market's relationship with, quote unquote, the real economy um, out there? Uh, it, are, are we seeing an environment, which you just suggested, which is that, look, the average American can actually be on the upswing in terms of wages um, and the rest of it, even if the markets don't fare well? The thing I would start with is that the stock market is absolutely not the economy. And that has never been clear, right? During COVID, businesses around the country were shut down. Um, you know, we were all sitting at home and the stock market was soaring. And thanks to, you know, those big tech companies that really loom large over the S&P 500 index. And now unemployment is super low. Um, wages have been ticking higher. The, the, the one thing I do want to say on the unemployment being low, I, the labor market has shrunk um, sure. since, since COVID. So there are a lot of people that went home and they just have stayed home. Uh, the yep. number I saw was something like 2.6 million. Um, yep. and eventually you would think that they would have to come back into the workforce though. If you spend time out of the workforce, unfortunately, sometimes you kind of stay out of the workforce, uh, that there, you know, yeah. like you, you can atrophy in various ways. So you're right. The headline unemployment number is, uh, like three and three and a half percent. It's like very, very low. Um, but the labor force participation rate is staying also stubbornly low, and we're all trying. We're we're all hoping that more people re-enter uh, the 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 workforce, but it hasn't happened yet. So I think there are some signs that it's happening, and and we at the journal recently cited some research from the St. Louis Fed, and I just this is so interesting. I just want to read it to you. Please, yeah, I love it. It showed that the, the St. Louis Fed estimates that falling asset prices may have led nearly 400,000 American workers aged 51 and up to join the workforce, to rejoin the workforce um, between January and October from last year. So maybe there is an increasing relationship, right, between the stock market and the economy, where I think so many people saw their portfolios kind of swell during the pandemic. And, and maybe some retirees who, who would have stayed at home decided to re-enter because stock prices were falling. And it'll be interesting to see how that progresses in 2023. Because to your point, yeah, the labor force participation rate, people are sitting on the sidelines. Do they keep entering uh, because of what's going on with, with the stock market? Gunjin, that's a very, very dark uh, snapshot. Uh, because what you said was essentially that there are, you know, uh, 51 to 54 year olds who've seen their savings de decrease and their portfolios diminish. And they were like, Oh no, I better get out of work. Like I thought I might be able to, um, uh, sit back and retire. I mean, like, like that, 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 that's dark. not the, yeah, that's not the spur it's you want dark. to get someone out there like that, that they they feel like they're going to be destitute. Total, no. And of course it's actually for retirees. It was just a terrible, terrible year. Well, I guess this data shows they re-entered between January and October last year. Yes, and that was one of the worst years on record for this traditional 60-40 portfolio of 60% stocks and 40% bonds. So it was just an awful year um, to, to kind of decide to retire. And it, you're right, it is very sad if they had to re-enter, although this data was for people aged um, 51 and up. But 
also there were like you know young 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 traders who thought that they you know were could trade stocks or sit at yeah, home and invest or maybe not yeah i think we've all heard some of those anecdotes so um you're right it is very sad if you know would be retirees would have to re-enter the workforce but i guess my point is that these rising asset prices um seem to have played some role in the labor force participation rate that that's fascinating and uh you know i know people who are uh, governors of the st louis fed so you know i'm sure that they they uh, are excited that you're quoting their data <laughs> <laughs> they literally they're like very proud of their data i also cite it's the good louis data fed. yeah they have, they have some of the best data around um it's true i i also do have a couple of college savings accounts or retirement accounts that resemble that 60 40 allocation where you know when i made it for um, my, my child, I was like, sure. And then I haven't looked at it in a long time. And I looked at it recently. I was like, wow, like that's lower. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like you look at it. So I can imagine, unfortunately, uh, Americans looking at their accounts, like snapping to attention saying like, what, like this thing has gone down, you know, 15, 18, 20, 22% or whatever it is. And then it, it changing their decision-making. Yeah, and, and how does it impact you know your spending in in the real economy? Yeah, your your job your job choices and and all of that. Um, so you sound like one of those people who only lo- opens a retirement account when it's going up, when the stock market is going up. You know, I I'm pretty <laughs> much a funny duddy. So like the dollar cost averaging, the set it and forget it, the just like look contribute that much and and don't think about it. Um, that's been my mo um, over this okay. last period of time. When I say period of time, I mean it's been a number of years now. <laughs> so, you know, do I have a lot of friends who are, you know, like doing much more aggressive, risky types of investing? Like, heck yes! Like, I've got a lot. Of, <laughs> I've got a lot of them. Um, but I, I'm pretty boring in part because, okay. like, my my energies have been focused in this other direction. Uh, and I just did not want to have my bandwidth sucked up by monitoring things. Yeah, and things have been so volatile, so it it would take a fair bit of monitoring. <laughs> so you have a bird's eye view of the markets, the economy. Uh, you have sources uh, all over uh, Wall Street and Main Street. I- I'm going to give my kind of like basic message and guidance, which, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you in, and then I'd, I'd like you to sort of you know like project uh, out out as well. Um, I I see this as a transition year uh, and probably something of a painful transition year. I personally think that people should uh, look for uh, conservative bets and and risk-free returns. I mean, uh, again, right now you probably have money sitting in an an account that pays you less than half of 1% uh, because, you know, like, I mean, I do. I'll just speak for myself. And then I looked up and was like, wait a minute, there are accounts now paying three and a half, five percent. Like I should probably get on that. This would be like a very good year to consolidate uh, to maybe a bit more uh, conservative in your decision making and to be in a position where if things do have some pullbacks that you're not losing sleep over it. Uh, that That's my personal orientation for certainly um, the first half of this year. I think that some of these high interest savings accounts are a good idea. I think that um, index funds are always a good idea, uh, particularly those that pay dividends, which are a really great way to balance out your returns and lower volatility. And, you know, I just want people to stay safe out there. Uh, you know, like I, I think I project an air of entrepreneurship and optimism, which I do, I do have. I mean, it's genuine. Um, but I, I also have uh, a sense as to the way that people can live uh, with peace of mind um, and prepare for the future in a way that that's um, not going to leave them in the lurch. You know, it's, it's funny that um, you brought up these high yield savings accounts because it's almost like inflation protected bonds became the new meme stocks over the past year with, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, Treasury just seeing unprecedented activity there. I think, and again, I'm I'm not you know here to give investment, investment advice, advice or any, yeah. yeah, or anything like that. But I do think that a lot of the shams that kind of cropped up over the past few years have have unraveled, right? With FTX, um, SPACs, not necessarily a sham, but this thing that you know seemed to skyrocket, and you know just the things that kind of seemed too good to be true. It turns out they really were too good to be true, and it's really hard to get eye popping returns out there. I think. One thing that strikes me is that even for professional investors, economists, forecasters, it's really, really, really hard 
to forecast and time a recession correctly. So I think that's something all investors should really keep in mind is that even some of the best Wall Street strategists, economists, if you keep hearing about a recession, sure, maybe we'll fall into a recession in the first half of this year, but maybe we won't. You know, no one got 2022, right? So I think it's important to take all of these forecasts um, with a grain of salt because it's really hard to time the market and kind of position perfectly for these things. I, I agree with that. Uh, I, I think that uh, economists have gotten something like zero of the last 10 recession calls right. Um, and, uh, you know, what I said before is like trying to outsmart everyone is uh, not a great approach. I mean, that's true for any of these forecasts and calls, too. <laughs> you know, you just want to do something that you're, you're, you're comfortable with. And it really infuriates me when political figures either talk up the market or talk down the market or take credit for the market, because nine times out of 10, they had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I mean, historically, stocks have gone up through through many presidential and political cycles, right? And the economy, um, the economy does seem to have been on an upswing since COVID, uh, but the stock market isn't reflecting that right now. Gunjin, thank you for being a voice of reason and sanity and perspective. How can people <laughs> keep up with you and your work? You you are on Twitter, um, which is one way people can follow you. Are there other things people can do? Thank you for asking. I am on Twitter. I tweet a decent amount about markets and the economy at GunjanJS. And I'm on Instagram at uh, GunjanSB. Well, really, I'm going to be excited about watching uh, your commentary and, and progress. Congratulations on um, a phenomenal start to your career. I'm going to guest start just because, you know, you, you seem... <laughs> you, you seem um, relatively young. <laughs> and and the next time there's like a massive implosion uh, or catastrophe or something like that, we'll have to have you back. <laughs> Happy to come back. This has been so fun chatting with you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Gunjin. Mm-hmm.